Wayne, I'm an alcoholic. I want to thank Liz and her committee for uh, inviting me to come share this uh, weekend with you good people. I love AA. That's, uh, if you're new in the room, that's probably the most significant thing I have to share this morning. You're gonna, it's going to take me a while to share that. But, uh, <laughs> but for me to say that I love AA uh, is significant for me. And if you're new like I am, at, like I was at one time, uh, I think you'll know what it one day means to love uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I want to thank Jim for that uh, interesting introduction. <laughs> My sponsors have taught me not to defend myself. <laughs> I'm having a tough time getting started this morning. <laughs> I wanted to say something about that moment where we saw each other naked, but... Uh... <laughs> I don't want to hurt Jim's feeling. <laughs> I love the aid. I mentioned that. <laughs> I uh, didn't know what to expect, as I never do, except I know there's going to be men and women uh, alcoholics, uh, and that I would make fast friends, and I did. Uh, I met Susan, and uh, they let me in their house, which is interesting in itself. I, uh, I had to place case within the first five minutes. <laughs> I looked for the security system. <laughs> I don't know. I'm powerless. And, uh, and I've been invited back. And, uh, I truly do love AA. And uh, there's many friends that I've met over the years here today. I'm glad you braved the early morning hour. It is right now 6.40 a.m. in California. And... Uh, I don't mind at all being here. Isn't that interesting? I only whined to a couple people. I got up. Uh, I woke up late. I shut shut off my alarm, told the phone to shut up, and uh, and then I remembered I told my sponsor I would meet him for coffee this morning at 8 o'clock. So, and I've been taught now, college anonymous, and I want you to know it's a lifesaver for me. I've been taught to do what I say I'm going to do when I say I'm going to do it, and if I can't do it, make a phone call. And for some people, that sounds like what an order, but uh, for me, it, it's... Continuing to save my life. Uh, I haven't had a drink, any pills, powders, potions, or lotions since uh, <laughs> the morning hour of November 8, 1977, and I'm pretty grateful for that. <laughs> I want to thank Sean for a real good talk last night. I uh, was glad to find out. The joke in Los Angeles right now is that Wayne Butler is the spiritual speaker at your conference. <laughs> and I understand it made it all the way here, too. Uh, I'm not quite sure what to think of that, but uh, I'm just a drunk. And uh, if you're new in this room, I'm, I don't represent AA. It may look like I do because I'm standing up here, as we all do. But the truth of the matter is, I'm just speaking for myself. And and if you don't identify with me or if something I say bothers you, don't judge AA as a whole by my presence. You might cheat yourself out of sobriety. Make sure you go to another meeting and go hear another speaker. And if you're alcoholic like me, I suggest you that you'll hear you'll hear the music one day. You'll hear someone up here that's going to sound an awful lot like you, and uh, you'll walk out of here feeling like you you maybe have a chance at belonging finally. 
And I know that's what happened to me. Uh, I love AA. So I tell you, I had a tough time leaving town last night. I suppose I better talk about this and get it off my mind. Uh, my son's in town. He's in California right now, and I don't get him very often. I get him as much as I can. There's a story behind that I'll get to later. But uh, I left on the red eye uh, Friday night at 11.46 p.m., and uh, the reason I, one of the reasons I took that red eye is so I could spend as much time with my son as I could, and, and, uh, and I'm going to get back as soon as I can so he can go with me tonight, uh, because I cherish that moments with my son. And uh, to even have my son with me and to have the opportunity to cherish those moments is, a big, is big for a guy like me because I'm a fruitcake. I really am. I mean, I love AA because you let me come here. Think about that for a minute. This is, a, this is like the last house on the block for a guy like me. I'm an alcoholic, and I have alcoholism, and I got a real good dose of it. And everything that's ever come into my path has been destroyed. And I've destroyed the hopes of a, of a child. I've destroyed the dreams of, of my daughters. And, and uh, I have to take responsibility for that. Even though it was the alcohol that was in me that caused me to do a lot of those things, I have to take personal responsibility. Otherwise, I can't amend it. And so I have to take a look at what I did so that perhaps God and you will give me an opportunity to mend those fences that I've that I've torn down over the years. And that fence with my son appears to have been mended because he has nothing but nice things to say to me. And if he talked to you, he'd, he'd have kicked him in the leg this morning for that wonderful introduction he gave me. <laughs> Hell, I might kick him. <laughs> you know what? Let me make a side note there. I couldn't have stood that kind of humor years ago. I'd have thought he didn't like me. See, because that's, that's what the football players did to us retarded kids in the class. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I want to tell you what they're really like. I, was, I truly was in the retarded class all through school. I'll get to that in a minute. But uh, In the retarded class, they, they made a mistake and gave us retarded kids last period gym. You know, and the football players were in there getting ready for workout. And uh, they would take us retarded kids, and they would take athletic tape and wrap it around our ankles, tie a rope between it, and run us up the rings. <laughs> Doesn't bother me. Bother me. Bother me. <laughs> I have something known as alcoholism, and I, I come from an alcoholic home, and, and I don't want to tell you much about my alcoholic home because I'm sort of a victim type, and, and by the time I'm done, I'll embellish it to the tenth power. I will make them so evil you will hate them before I'm done. And then they might want to come here and get recovery too, and I don't want that to happen to them. I want them to have the same hope and help that I was given freely because you had no idea what you were getting into when you let me in here. Uh, I'll tell you this much about my family. My father died from untreated alcoholism. Uh, my mother died, I believe, from untreated alanonism. Um, I've got a brother sober 19 years. He goes to one meeting a year whether he needs it or not. Uh, I've got a sister who takes Valium and it works for her. And, uh, and then there's me. And I like to refer to myself as one of Jerry's kids. Jerry Springer. I live in California now, so whenever I get homesick and think about moving home, I just turn on about an hour of Jerry Springer, and I stay right where I'm at in California. I love AA. My idea of an alcoholic, Sean mentioned it last night. Um, my, this is my true idea. I saw it on TV once, an alcoholic. He was laying in a doorway in an alleyway with a tattered and torn raincoat on, with a rope tied about the waist, 
You could see there were holes in the soles of his shoes, uh, mismatched shocks, and he was drinking something out of a brown paper bag. And that to me, and by the way, 22 years sober, that's still my idea of an alcoholic. Therefore, I've never drank anything to this very day out of a brown paper bag. <laughs> Therefore, not alcoholic. And so I've got to keep coming to these meetings to keep meeting people that are like I was to remind me of what I could be again. And uh, not to look upon them in any other way except to understand that they're showing me the, the way I used to be. And you know, it's a good reminder for me because sometimes the greatest problem I've got today is remembering I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I've been sober just long enough now that sobriety can become dangerous. And I want you newcomers to hear that. We know that you're suffering, uh, but you, you might want to know that sometimes we suffer too. And uh, I need help just like you do. And I get the help I need by doing stuff like this, by being of service to Alcoholics Anonymous, by calling my sponsor when I say I'll call him, by being available to the people I sponsor, by continuing doing the step work, and doing the actions of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's held me in good stead. I mean, I, I believe I'm in my right mind. That's not a poll that I'm taking. I just believe that, I believe that, I believe that most of the time I'm in my right mind and I'm not going to ask Reggie. I, he, didn't you say put you on tape? No, I'm kidding. I drink. I love to drink. I love Budweiser. I love Budweiser more than life itself. I truly do. I understand Louis the Lizard. I have compassion for him. When I see the Clydesdales in a parade, I weep. I do. I'll tell you how much I miss Budweiser. Me and Jim were driving over here and we saw from the airport and I saw a Budweiser billboard. And I said, slow down, Jim. we got to have a moment of silence. <laughs> if I could drink today, I would. That's not AA blasphemy. That's just the truth. I, I believe that if I could walk over to Larry's Oasis right now, because that was my saloon of choice. If I could walk over to Larry's... Because as soon as I touch the doorknob to Larry's Oasis, I get a sense of immediate relief. Because I know I'm going in there, and that's my home. See, that's why an AA home group is so important to me. Because I'm a saloon drinker, and I needed that sense of, of... I didn't know it then, by the way. I needed that sense of belonging that I had when I went to Larry's Oasis. I was a barroom athlete. You know, pool, pinball, poker, 50-yard race to the bathroom. I had it all down. If I could walk to Larry's... If I could go to Larry's Oasis right now, I'd walk in the door, Larry would be bartending for sure. And I would put a quarter in the jukebox and I would play Midnight at the Oasis, Put Your Camels to Bed. <laughs> then I'd go put a quarter on the pool table and before I got to the bar, Larry would have a long neck Budweiser sitting there waiting for me. If I could just drink maybe two and not notice that Mo jumped my quarter on the pool table, thereby forcing me to hit him in the face with a pool cue... <laughs> I wouldn't be here. I'd be at Larry's Oasis. But the truth is, and that would indicate that I'm normal. That's why I say that. That would indicate that I'm normal. Like most of the people, a lot of people I drank with were not alcoholic. They didn't stay there till all hours of the night. They didn't make and break promises to the wife and the kids like I did. Uh, their wife wasn't calling them at Larry's Oasis, and Larry wasn't saying, No, Ellen, he's not here. And then an hour later, the cab shows up. You know who's in the cab, right? Oh, it's her. And she's hot. And I'm hiding anywhere I can. In the bar, I'm hiding from my wife. So that Larry doesn't look like a liar. 
And then, of course, she has to tear the place up because she knows I'm in there. So that's all about love. <laughs> I had problems. I, uh, I did not know what was wrong with me. Uh, I've come to understand that my illness is one of perception as well as drinking. And I didn't understand what that was. Let me deviate from my talk for a minute in case you're new to share with you my personal experience about Clancy's approach to the disease of perception. I understand it. When I was sober a few minutes, my sponsor took me to a meeting in Chicago, Illinois at the Mustard Seed Group because the police were looking for me in Moline, which they had a habit of doing, and uh, had a few difficult circumstances in my life. And... Uh, I've been around AA drinking for five years, and, and so I knew a lot about AA. And <laughs> at least that was my opinion. And there was a room similar to this, only narrow, and there was about 300 people in the room. And there was some speaker guy, you know, from New York, I assume, that New York's, you know, sensed that satellite speakers everywhere, and because and I knew a lot about AA. And... Uh, my sponsor Barney was in the front row with all the other old timers and they had us losers in the second row at least that was my opinion and so they wouldn't have to look at the disease don't you know <coughs> and uh, I'm sitting next to my best friend Jim I've known him three minutes <laughs> and I find it necessary to critique the speaker just like some of you are right now <laughs> I know I already saw you don't, 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 don't look down now I saw you So I was critiquing the speaker. And I, I was louder that day than I am right now. And everybody was hearing me, though I didn't know it because it was all about me, 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 me. And the speaker was speaking. And I've been around drunk five years, so I know what's happening. And I'm wanting to help my new friend Jim because he don't know what's going on. He's new, too. So as this guy's speaking, I'm going crazy in my mind because I know everything out of his mouth is a lie, don't you know? So as he's talking, I nudged Jimmy and I said, oh, Jimmy, he's such a liar. How he couldn't have drank like that? His guts would have fall out. And I saw my sponsor start doing that sponsor twitch. <laughs> if you have a sponsor, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> and then he started talking on and, and he said something else. And I said, oh, Jimmy, he's such a liar. He couldn't have done that. He'd be locked up in a psych ward. I know. I've been there 17 times. <laughs> And that's the truth. I've been there 17 times, and I like it there. I don't miss I miss it. I do. Now I'm going to tell you why, in case you slip. You know, out there, given the way I drank and the way I acted, it got lonely. I couldn't get a date to save my life. But you put me in a psych ward, and I got a 50-50 shot. I felt sorry for you, Sean, when you said you'd never been in a psych ward. I thought, well, it must have got lonely. I thought. Now I'm going to tell you how I got my date in case you're interested. You know, I've had enough Thorazine pumped into me to slow me down until I'm 210. Anybody else in here had Thorazine? Okay, I'm, I'm dying if I'm lying. Let me tell you what Thorazine did to me. It didn't do a single solitary thing to slow down the speed of my thinking, but my butt will never catch it. <laughs> well, I know if it does it to me, it does it to you girls, too. <laughs> so the psych ward I was on 
they brought the med cart right out onto the floor. And we just lined up to take our little pilly willy. And they had these little white paper cups that they put the pills in. And I know what that Thorazine looked like. And I'd spot the girls and I'd see which ones were taking Thorazine. And I'd kind of pick one out. And then I'd time it. Because I knew in about an hour I was going to have a date. I knew she could not run me. So I told Jimmy, ah, Jimmy, he'd be locked up in a psych ward for the rest of his life. And then he said something else, and oh my God, Jimmy, he's such a liar, he couldn't have done that, he'd be locked up in prison. And I guess my sponsor got sick and tired of hearing me going on like that. He turned around and looked me right in the eye in front of 300 people, and here's what I heard him say. Shut up, you goddamn loser! You ain't got a thing to say. What do you want to hear? And if we ever think you do, we'll come out that abandoned car we pulled you out of behind Harvey's restaurant, we'll toot your little horn and invite you in to share. <laughs> now sit there, keep your big mouth shut and leave. That's what I heard him say. You know what he really said? So if I tell you that's what I heard, bear in mind. You know, and I still got that. Not to the degree I had it when I was new, but I still got it. And that's why sponsorship for this alcoholic is so important. It's, it's, it's not that I'm a weak little kid that needs someone to parent me. I'm a man who understands my condition. And I know the best buffer between me and the insanity of my mind is to have another human being in my corner who can help me sort through that stuff. And just being 22 years sober does not render me free from that condition. I have alcoholism till the day I die. Now, the degree of the insanity I live with is based almost entirely upon my willingness to surrender on a daily basis to a power greater, be committed to service in AA, to do the things I say I'm going to do, and to have that power around me, the power that's here. I don't want to forget that. If I forget that, I might be able to do it Wayne's way again. I'll find myself consumed with Wayne's world, and it'll just be... <laughs> I love AIDS. I mentioned that. <laughs> so I've got this thing called alcoholism. I have no idea what it is. Now I understand that disease of perception. But I got to tell you, I didn't. I didn't know that till I was sober. A number of years did I understand that. That's how I heard. That's how I saw. And that's how I felt. Now, if you're new, I want to share with you what I understand about that. When I when I say that, it, when I was a kid in that alcoholic home, because I don't want to blame my parents for nothing. I had problems right out of the chute. I had a thing called the ism that I'll talk about in a minute that I didn't even know I had. But I know somewhere around the age of eight or nine, I looked in the mirror at home. I looked in that mirror and I thought to myself, Butler, it's too bad, pal. It's going to be a long life. And it's going to be lonely because you are butt ugly, pal. I don't know where that came from. Mama Butler never sat me down and said, Oh, you poor little son of a you are so ugly. Just out of mercy alone, I'd put you back if I could. That's not what my mama said, but that's what I heard. When she said, Wayne, I love you. You hear me? 
And I felt retarded. You know what's interesting? Nobody told me I was. I felt that way. On the nest, I thought, my God, there's something wrong with me. What, did, what is it about me? I'm goofy. And I'm not going to go around saying, hey, do you know I'm goofy? <laughs> I'm not going to go validate by saying, do you think I'm goofy? Because you're going to say, yeah, you're goofy. Because that's the way we are. I just felt that way. And apparently a person like me who's alcoholic, according to Dr. Silkworth, has a tendency to act outwardly the way I feel. I lack this capacity to act better than I feel. You know, that's what my sponsor and everybody around me in AA try to get me to do, is to overcome my feelings by acting better than I feel. I had no idea that had anything to do with my problem, but today I understand how big it really is. Because when I was a kid growing up, I had absolutely no power to act better than I felt. If I felt bad, I acted bad, and I enjoyed company. So I'll tell you something, if you're like me and you act retarded, I guess what? You act retarded in school, you know what they'll do? They'll diagnose you. I got diagnosed retarded in ninth grade. They put me in a retarded class, and I improved. <laughs> I did good that year. <laughs> to such a point, they kept me in a retarded class all through school. I never left. And I found out that if the retarded boys go in the girls' bathroom, they don't get detention. They do have a few hang-ups, though. I'll tell you about my first drink, and I don't want to get sober, because my first drink is absolutely no different from another drink I took after that. I had no idea until I came to AA why I drank. I know now. I have a complete understanding of why I drank. And you might wonder why that has anything to do with anything. That's because that's, I understand my condition. And that's why I'm still with you people. You know, this, after this many years, I know my sponsor and other people can testify to it. And I don't mean, I, this isn't AA blasphemy. But this stuff, if I allow my mind to take over, gets old. I see people out there who don't have to work as hard as I do. I see people who don't have to go to meetings as often as I do. I see people out there, I just saw a guy at the gym, goes to one meeting a week, whether he needs it or not. Gym and church is his solution. And for him, that's none of my business. But you know what my mind does with information like that? Like, hmm. I can go 100 miles an hour with one thought. So I don't know what's wrong with me. There's something terribly wrong. I'm in a retarded class. I don't know what's going on. And there's a guy named Tom who feels sorry for us. And I'm not. And if you know anybody who's mentally retarded, please don't take this the wrong way. I'm telling you, I was diagnosed and lived in a group home part of that time. And uh, we had a guy named Tom who took us retarded kids on field trips. I was his favorite. I was bright. He said I was brighter than most of the other retarded kids. <laughs> I was their leader. <laughs> I took them retarded kids places they never, ever should have went. <laughs> Tom took me to the senior dance. And uh, I'm standing over there against the wall. I'm six foot three. I weigh 120 pounds. I'm retarded. I'm ugly. And I don't want to talk. And uh, I talk to myself. And I have a good conversation. Thank you. There's no argument when you talk to yourself. Till later. Have you seen a few shrinks? Then you start arguing with yourself. Because then they give you information you don't really want. So I'm standing over there against that wall, watching all these boys and girls mix it up and dance and do stuff I don't understand. And Tom brings me over this long brown bottle with a red, white, and blue label. And he said, here, drink this. It'll make you feel better. It's a Budweiser. I'd have saluted it if I knew it was about to happen. 
But I drank that Budweiser and I said, Tom, that tastes terrible. I want a Pepsi-Cola. Tom says, that's okay, kid. You'll get used to it. <laughs> now, Tom to this day is a social drinker. Never, ever developed a problem with alcohol. All he meant was just like every other thing we tried that's not good for us. It's, I'm supposed to get a little bit sick probably and overdrink a little bit, but then I would normalize. You know, the first experience that everything is usually not really good. And uh, that's what he meant. But Dr. Silkworth talks about an effect produced by alcohol and that essentially that's why I, the abnormal drinker, drink. is because I want that effect produced. But he goes on to say it's an illusion. And if you're new, I want you to know what that means. That illusion means I don't know what's happening. It's below the level of my consciousness. And I submit to you that's why it renders me absolutely powerless to do anything about it because it's producing an effect below the level of my consciousness. It's an illusion, which means the earth people say it's really not happening. Oh, really? <laughs> I can tell you that that wasn't an illusion for me. At the age of 17, somewhere between four and five Budweiser's, I got so good looking, I couldn't stand it. <laughs> you know that mirror I looked at where I thought I was ugly? There's days I get up today, I still have that. There's days, there, there are, there's days I get up and I look in the mirror and I think, <laughs> Butler, you had a little hope. And then there's days I wake up naturally, so good looking, I can't stand it. <laughs> today was one of those days. <laughs> I felt sorry for Jim this morning. <laughs> All that hair. <laughs> that hair. You know, don't you? <laughs> I had no idea at the age of 17 that that was going to do that to me. I looked out on the dance floor and I bought me a blue-eyed blonde. Dancing with some loser. <laughs> I'd gone from retarded class to winter dumb. And just 4.5 Budweiser's. <laughs> and I walked up to that girl and asked her to dance, and she said yes. I found out later that night sex meant two people. <laughs> Kids in retarded class don't know that. <laughs> I didn't know that. She ruined my sex life right away. I needed therapy right the first time. I'll tell you why. I've been having sex since I was 13, and I thought I was good at it. I went back to retarded class. A few weeks later, my daddy calls me in, and he says, we got a problem. I said, what's that? He says, uh, you know that girl you was with at that party? I said, yeah. He said, uh, She's 16. I said, yeah. He said, she's pregnant. Now, I was 17. I said, what's that mean? I could tell by his demeanor that wasn't a good thing. And uh, I found out in Illinois that any boy 14 or older has sex with a girl 17 or younger. It's called statutory rape. And I said, what's that mean, Dad? He says, 20 years to life. I said, even if you're retarded? <laughs> I may have been retarded, but I wasn't slow. So I found out if you marry him, you don't go to jail, so I fell in love. 
We went to Palmyra, Missouri, where you can marry your 10-year-old cousin if you got enough money. No offense. I want you to get this picture in your mind. We're driving back from Palmyra, Missouri with my mom and dad in the front seat. Me, my wife Bonnie, baby in the tummy in the back seat. And it occurs to me that I'm about to graduate to retarded class in high school. I'm married. I've got a baby on the way. And I've drank one time. <laughs> Second time I drank. Uh, I was just turned 18. I was getting... I was. Things were bad for me. And I drank a bottle of tequila. Now, I've never drank tequila before. I went to a party. Now, I want you to know something. I, that Budweiser got into my mind, right? So I go to this party. Silkworth says that people like me have strange mental twists prior to a lapse into drinking. I go to this party. I see all kinds of Budweiser, and I make a conscious decision not to drink Budweiser because I don't want no more babies. You follow that? And I drank a bottle of tequila. That stuff made me talk to God. And I told God about all the terrible things that I thought my family had done to me growing up. And I asked God what He thought I ought to do. I heard God say to me, kill your family. So that's what I did. I went home and tried to kill my family that night. And I got locked up in a psych ward. And I got examined by some psychiatrists, took a lot of tests. And uh, I'm faced with institutionalization, or I was given the option of going to Vietnam. I went to Vietnam. <laughs> I may be retarded, but I'm not stupid. <laughs> Vietnam saved my life. Uh, you know, I went there and I was gone. Based on those two experiences, I'm never drinking again. I didn't quit drinking. I just said, based on those two experiences, I'm never drinking again. And I went in the Navy. I was gone a total of three years. Did my time in Vietnam. Came back. They made me captain's driver. I played baseball for the 7th Fleet. I had it made. I had watched Standards Liberty. I loved the Navy. I loved everything about it. I loved the Navy so much, even my boxer shorts were starched and pressed. You just never know when you might have a drop inspection. <laughs> and uh, one night the captain asked me to babysit his kids so he and his wife could go to an officer's ball. And I said, sure. So I put him in the car. And all of a sudden, from nowhere came the thought, as I was going over there to pick his kids up, a thought came from nowhere. Wayne, let's stop and get a six-pack of butt. What can it hurt? You haven't drank for three years. Prior to that, you've only drank twice and nothing really bad happened. <laughs> so I stopped and got a six-pack of butt. And I drank it. Then I put his kids in the car to go get another six-pack, and that's all I remember. I blacked out. And uh, when I came out of my blackout, my captain was about two inches from my face screaming, where's my kids? I had no clue. That really made him mad. I wanted him to understand. You know, we found his kids. Apparently, in that blackout, I had taken them to his sister's house and left them because I knew that would be the responsible thing to do. Don't you agree? He, I couldn't get him to understand that. I explained it. I even told my captain he was overreacting. I thought we were good enough friends I could do that. And you know, I got a choice of going to treatment at Balboa Naval Hospital in San Diego or being discharged with a code number SPN384, which was to haunt me most of my life. 
And I took the discharge. I could not believe I was an alcoholic. By the time I got discharged, I'd only drank four times in my life. My God, how can I be an alcoholic? And I left there and came home to make a long story short from that day to the day I took my last drink. It was to chase that effect. I had no idea that that's what I was doing, was chasing that effect produced. Had I known that, perhaps I could have hit bottom sooner, but I hit bottom when I was supposed to hit bottom. I don't know. November 1972 is my first trip to AA. I want to tell you about that. I've been sleeping in a dumpster because my wife couldn't take me anymore. And I was doing terrible things that I was afraid were going to be irreversible. I moved out of my house. And because of my drinking and the way I was living, I ended up on Skid Row in, in Moline, our Skid Row. And uh, Larry wouldn't let me sleep in the Oasis anymore because I was waking up in the middle of the night shooting at the whiskey bottles behind the bar, doing my marksman thing in case I was ever discovered as Matt Dillon. <laughs> you know how you are when you're drunk and you got a gun? you got to shoot something. I mean, you, you got I mean, what's a gun for if you don't shoot something? So I was shooting the whiskey bottles because I saw them gunslingers on TV. So Larry wouldn't let me sleep in the bar anymore. And the only place I had to go, because it was cold outside, the only place I had to go was in the dumpster. So I made that home. Voluntarily. I found out later on that if you burrow down into about three feet of... You know, if you can find a dumpster where they haven't picked the garbage up for a while, this is in case you slip. <laughs> if you burrow down into about three feet of garbage, it gives off a strange kind of a heat as it decomposes. And you don't get frostbite. That's really true. And if you're hungry, what the hell? It's right there. <laughs> I remember I was in that dumpster one night and I heard a knock on my door. <laughs> I was home. I opened up the lid. I knew it wasn't the garbage man. It wasn't the right time of day. You got to know when the garbage man's coming. And uh, you know who's looking down there at me? My daddy. And I'll never forget the look in his eye. And he says to me, do you want to come home? No, I don't. I like it in here, Dad. Doesn't this look warm and cozy to you? I'd invite you in if there was room. After all, it's your and Mom's fault I'm here. That isn't what I said. What I said was, no thanks, Dad, I'm doing fine. My dad didn't need Al-Anon. Shut the door and left. Never, never came. No offense, Al-Anon. He didn't need any help. He left me lay there. And by the good grace of God, it got too cold for me to stay in that dumpster. And I found myself walking again. You know how we are. We start walking. And I found Harvey's Restaurant. Now, I'm pretty smooth and romantic with 80-year-old women at midnight. I want to tell you what a vision I was for you. I had long hair down in my butt. It had stuff matted in it from the dumpster. God only knows what was in there. I had a full beard hiding the fact I had no teeth because I was ashamed of the fact I had no teeth and I would have to take action if I thought you were laughing at me. So it was easier just to grow a face full of hair and try to hide it. I walked into Harvey's restaurant that night and here she was, a little old 80-year-old waitress, just kind of serving coffee and stuff. And I was able to manipulate her into giving me a hot cup of water and letting me sit there with a bottle of Heinz tomato ketchup and make tomato soup. And she would smuggle me some saltines. And the owner of that restaurant was a guy named Harvey. I had no idea he was in AA. wouldn't have mattered to me anyway because I'm not going to AA. If I knew what AA was, I'm not an alcoholic. I got some problems psychiatrically. Yes, I do. But it's not my fault. But I'm not an alcoholic. And uh, she talked me into mopping and waxing the dining room floors for two sausage sandwiches on whole wheat toast. 
And by then, that sounded like a good deal. But about halfway through that floor, I thought, boy, she's taking advantage of me. <laughs> Harvey walks in. Harvey's the owner of that restaurant. And Harvey's just sinfully ugly. I'm sorry, but he was. That was my opinion. He was a little guy. He had this giant nose. Narrow in the passage with giant bulbs on the end. And no offense, it just looked like bombs had gone off on the end. And he had blood veins you could see right beneath the surface of his nose. Underneath the skin, they were red and purple and black. And I swear to God, when his heart beat, his nose thumped. And I was just mesmerized by his. I never saw a nose like that ever. Now I know today it was whiskey nose. Oh, Harvey starts talking to me. And he's, you know, he's doing that. I know you're down and out, but you know, all that, that, that yada data. And he pulls this brass coin out of his pocket. And on one side, he's got these two A's. And on the other side, he's got this prayer, God grant me something. And it didn't say money, food, and shelter. I wasn't interested. <laughs> and now, here's what he really said. He said, you take this coin tomorrow down to 416 16th Street, Moline. Show it to them people. Tell them Harvey sent you. They're friends of mine. They're going to help you. That's really what he said. Now, what I heard <laughs> is the only reason I went there the next day. I heard him say, if you go down there... They'll give you some free food to eat because we know you're hungry. We'll give you some pocket dough because we know you're broke. And three or four packs of pell-mell tailor-made cigarettes. Had I not heard that, I would have never went. I had no ideas. He didn't tell me I was going to AA. You know them old-timers? They lie to you! <laughs> but now that I'm over 20 years, I realize it's spiritual trickery. <laughs> more palatable to the senses. <laughs> so I get down and I find it. And he says there will be a light bulb. He says, if you look down into the cellar entryway, you'll see a light bulb hanging on a cord. He said, if that light's on, go in. They're expecting you. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. So I go down there and I find the address and it's in a part of town that's being torn down. And I see a sign on the side of the building that says, Building Condemned. Do not enter. And then I see another sign right below it with an arrow pointing into the cellar. said, AA, 16th Street, welcome. <laughs> Don't do that to a newcomer. <laughs> Is it condemned or isn't it? And then I found the light bulb hanging on a cord. But it wasn't on. It was flickering. <laughs> you understand what I mean? It wasn't. It was flickering on and off. Well, I wasn't well enough to entertain the idea there might have been a short in the cord. I thought it was some kind of an SOS message. I think, like, what's it mean? And, I mean, it would have drove you crazy, too, given the given. I didn't know what to do, so I couldn't go in because I didn't know if it was okay. So I went over to Larry's Oasis. And when I drink, I don't care where I go. I figured I deserved the handout by the time I had a few beers in me. So I went back. Charged through that cellar doorway without even looking up. The doorway is five tennis to a basement. I'm six three. The door header hit me right across the eyebrow. The impact literally knocked me off my feet, and I slid into my first meeting of Alcohol's Nine. And inside that door is a round table with six or seven old men, in my opinion, talking about death and dying. This old one gets up out of his chair and goes just like this.
Then I heard him say, slide right in here, dummy. We got a wrench to fit every nut that comes in the door. I didn't like him right away. So I'm reaching for that 357 I've got tucked away. And then he says to me, dummy. And I looked up at him and I said, my name's Wayne. He said, got it, dummy. <laughs> at least that's what I heard. He says, I'm going to be your sponsor. That saved his life. You might wonder why. I've never been to AA before, but I did play baseball. Sponsors pay for everything. <laughs> that got my attention. I wasn't about to shoot him then. So I got up off the floor and basically stuck my head right up his butt. For the next five years, I followed him everywhere he went. They say he should have put turntables on his hip to keep from breaking my neck. Should he turn left or right? I was where he was, as he was. Poor Barney. For the next five years, I went to meetings and I drank before me. I'm a slipper, and I'm not ashamed of it. That's just what I am. I just haven't slipped for 22 years, nine months, and a few days. But I'm a slipper, and if you're a slipper, I want you to know you're welcome here. Keep coming back. I am as you are. Uh, I just haven't had to drink today, and I'm grateful for that. But uh, I followed him around for five years. And by the way, if you ever find a gathering like this where a drinking drunk's not allowed to sit in and listen to the message of hope, in my opinion, that's not AA no more. It's a gathering of people who forgot where they came from. You hear me? However, if you're new, <laughs> but <laughs> if you're new, we do want you to behave while you're here. And therein lies my problem. I can either drink or I can behave. I just can't do it simultaneously. I remember I came into my home group, the Moline group, one night about four years drinking. And I, let me share this with you. I've been around enough meetings to hear you say that when you help me, it helps you. Got it? Now follow along on that line of thinking for a minute. I'm at Larry's Oasis. It's almost meeting time. I'm drinking. And I realize I want to go to a meeting so you can help me so you can feel better about yourself. You get that line of thinking? So I went to the meeting late. Walked in on the speaker. Disrupted the meeting, and I didn't care. I was spiritually gifted at the moment, so to speak, because I was going to let you help me so you could go to bed feeling better about yourself, basically. And I walked in the meeting, disrupted the meeting, and some old-timer got up and said, you got to quiet down. You're disrupting the meeting. And I said to him, I don't want to. Another one gets up and says, you got to sit down. You're disturbing the meeting. And I said, I don't have to. Another one got up and says, you have to leave. You're welcome to come back tomorrow because we don't kick anybody out of AA. But we do have a right to an undisturbed, undistracted message for not only the newcomer, but for ourselves. So you have to leave. And I looked at him and I said, you can't make me. Oh, yes, they can. <laughs> See that baby Buddha over there? Four guys about his size, each one grabbed an arm and a leg. Talked some newcomer into holding the door open. I noticed as I flew by. Just before I landed out in 16th Street, I heard one of the old timers yell out, Keep coming back! <laughs> oh, you gotta love it. Four and a half years drinking, going to meetings, I walk in the door of the Moline group and I heard my sponsor yell out, Hey, Demi! I said, What? He says, You know this program tends to work better when you don't drink? I didn't know that. I've been going to meetings for four and a half years, and I swear to God, I never one time heard anybody say anything about not drinking. 
And it's probably a good thing. But I heard it. And it's, it done something to me so bad that all I could do is try to silence the threat. And I reached down into my cowboy boot and I, I pulled that 357 out and fired around off at my sponsor's face. I missed him six inches high. They say if Barney would have been six foot tall, he'd be six foot under. <laughs> Came through the next morning at Franciscan Mental Health Center in Rock Island, Illinois, at my 17th trip to the psych ward. I was tied down on six-point leather restraints to a steel bed in the center of a padded room, black and blue from head to toe from a little AA group therapy. <laughs> Good therapy. Never done that again. I had a visitor the next morning. You know who it was? Barney. I couldn't get rid of him for nothing. He was like a maggot on a mission. Uh, he was, you, know, you know what I'm saying? He, uh, he's walking around my bed. I mean, I can't go nowhere. And he looks down at me and he says, Dunny? There's something wrong with you. I don't even know if you're an alcoholic. You might just be nuts. And I'm thinking, you know what, pal? they got to let me out of here someday. And when they do, I'm going to get you for that. He must have had ESPN because he heard it. I mean, the next thing out of his mouth was, if they let you out of here. And I'm not sure they're going to. They're talking about keeping you and studying you a while. And then he said something that you and I hear on a daily basis. He says, but if they let you out of here, when, when they do, if you come with us and do what we did and still do, you can recover too. You know, I never heard a word of judgment from him, not from that day only, but from that day to this very day. He's never made me relive that experience with him. Other people haven't been quite so kind and understanding. <laughs> you went to my home group today, the first thing you say, oh, Butler? Oh, yeah, he tried to kill the sponsor. <laughs> They're not quite so forgiven. <laughs> But my sponsor was, and that's what counts. You understand what I'm saying? And he told me that if I would come with him and do what he did and still do, I could recover too. And I was to get out of that psych ward because he was involved in the psychiatric, in the, what we call H&I. He was involved heavily, and he went to the psychiatrist and got me released to him. Can you believe that? I don't know if I could have done that. I asked Barney one day, I said, weren't you afraid of me? He says, I ain't afraid of you. Why would I be afraid of you? It's in the book. You know the book? The book. You hear about the book till you're sick of the book before you read the book to get sick of the book. He said, it's in the book. I said, oh, really? And it is. He said, we do not fear, need to fear to go to the most sordid spot on earth to carry this message that God will keep us unharmed. And he says, bucko, you are the most sordid spot I've ever been. <laughs> they call that AA love. He said, in the book it says that an alcoholic in his cups is an unlovely creature. He says, you're going to have to work down to be a child of God. <laughs> he wasn't trying to hurt me. He was telling me the truth. I was in the throes of alcoholism and had no idea. Thank God he knew. I don't have to know. If you're new, we don't have to know. We just got to trust that the people that came before us know. And will take us through it so that we can uncover, discover, and discard those things about us that cause us to be active in our alcoholism. And I'm grateful my sponsor knew those things. I'm grateful my sponsor was schooled in the way he was because he knew to take me through it. And by golly, he did. November 8th was a cold morning. I was at the Rock Island Rescue Mission. It was on 20, right off of 20th Street. 
I had no idea what the distance was from there to the Moline group, but I got kicked out at 4.30 in the morning on November 8th. I had no intention of going back to AA that day, but it was cold outside, and I got kicked out for rifling pillowcases. I failed to notice there were heads on them. I got kicked out, and uh, all of a sudden I wanted to go to AA again. You know how we get when we're cold, nowhere to go. AA is a good place to visit. So I'm a slipper. I'm a snowbird. That's what I do. And so I made that walk from the Rock Island Rescue Mission to the Moline Group for their noon meeting. And on the way there, I stole a six-pack of hot Budweiser. By the time I got there, it was cold. <laughs> and I remember sitting on the front stoop of the Moline Group, drinking that Budweiser. I drank three cans, and then guess who showed up early for the meeting? Yep. <laughs> early. Did you hear me? Early. You know what? Like the good old-timer he is... He didn't even look at the Budweiser. He looked me right in the eye. And he says, why don't you come in and help me set up for the meeting? I, I looked at that three cans of beer I had left, and I said, okay, I'll be in in a minute. <laughs> and then something happened. And I took those three cans of Budweiser and hit them in the bush for after the meeting. And then I went into the meeting. Well, I went into the room and helped set up. And then something happened that it took me a long time to put together what really happened. A newcomer walked in. Now, I'm not new. See, I've been around five years. <laughs> You tracking? And I only had three cans of beer. I wasn't even drunk. Therefore, not a newcomer. This guy walked. He stumbled in, never been to A before, drunk on his can. So I was going to sponsor him. <laughs> My sponsor intervened. We sat there and helped this newcomer. Well, he did the talking. I was there in case he needed body support. And uh, After the meeting, he took... Me and the newcomer, out for lunch. And I haven't had a drink since that day, and uh, neither has Jimmy. We neither one have had a drink since that day. We've both been sober that whole time. He's moved on. He don't live in Moline no more. And I don't live there no more. We both stayed sober that day. You know, it took me a long time to put that together. And I've been chasing newcomers ever since. I mean, my sponsor said, if you want hope, you got to work with newcomers. Grab a newcomer, he said. Now, I take things literal. So I'm sitting in my home group waiting on a newcomer. I, he said I'd know what one looked like when I saw one. So I saw him. He had that deer-in-the-headlight look. And I charged him. And I meant to shake his hand. But by the time I got to him, my hand had raised up to his throat. And I pinned him up against the wall. And I said, listen, asshole! If you want what I got, you got to do what I did! Well, I've been sober two weeks. <laughs> this is what I heard. You ain't got nothing I want. <laughs> so I knew what to do. I let him go. Let go. Let go. And I said, you might be here when you get back, pal. So I went to my sponsor and said, Barney, he don't want nothing I got. Barney says, really? <laughs> he says, what we hope is you don't want what you got. <laughs> He says, but you keep working with newcomers. You're bound to find one sick enough to let you sponsor them. And you know, I've been chasing them newcomers ever since. I grab them every chance I get. I just, I just love watching them spin. I just, I don't spin with them no more. I used to. And, uh, a week and a half after that, it was Thanksgiving, 1977, and there was this thing called an AA convention. Coming to Rock Island, Illinois. I thought, well, what's an AA convention? Oh, joy. My sponsor says, we got it. Well, what I heard him say was, 
you're dirty, you stink, and you're ugly, and you got no teeth. What he really said was, we need to clean you up. <laughs> See, my home group consisted of about 15 people. There was 14 men and toothless Sally, so her and I got along great. <laughs> They say if we'd ever kissed, there'd have been a vacuum in the room. <laughs> and he says, uh, you're going to go meet some people in AA and I want you to change the way you look. It, you know, they're going to be, rest- you know, I want, you know, he was trying to make me feel better than I looked. So he took me to his, well, first of all, we had to get my hair cut. And that was an act of Congress. And then he's, he, he wasn't against facial hair at all. He just said, you know what? You don't have to hide anymore. He says, I know the only reason you got that beard is because you got no teeth. Why don't you shave? I said, Barney, people laugh at me. He says, why don't you shave? And so I did. And then he took me to his favorite department store, the Salvation Army, <laughs> to buy me my first go-to-convention clothes. Now, this is November 1977. You listening? The only suit they had on that rack that would fit me was his lime green double-knit polyester. <laughs> The inside lining was bright yellow, and it had green tennis rackets. So we bought it. We went over to the shirt department, and I said, Barney, I'm picking out the shirt. So I found this shirt. It was really cool. I thought it was silk. It was brushed polyester. had a collar that came down to here. didn't have any buttons from the neck to here, so I thought I'd show my bony chest. It had animals on it. It was cool. Bought that. Then we went over to the shoe department. I passed on the underwear. <laughs> went over to the shoe department, and the only 13 and a half inch gunboats they had in supply. Is there any disco people here? Remember, remember those black and brown box toe Oxford disco shoes with a two and a half inch platform sole and a four inch heel? That's all they had in my size, so we bought them. We got out there for a buck eighty-five. He dresses me up and takes me to the convention and makes me a greeter. Puts me at the front door. No teeth. That was a vision for you. My sponsor stood right there beside me, probably so I wouldn't accost anybody. And I wanted you to know the reason I'm here tonight is number one. Today is I'm still sober. But number two is because of that convention my sponsor took me to. That's why I'm absolutely willing to do this. There were six speakers there from out of our area. I didn't know what a convention was. I'd never been to one. A speaker by the name of Chuck C. He had Elsa with him. A guy by the name of Clancy I. Norm Alpey. Tom Brady. Johnny H. Dottie Shore. And uh, I remember how they walked in. And I was greedy. Forever. Chuck walked by me, and this is all I heard. I couldn't have got a hug from Elsa if I wanted to. Johnny bent me over and frisked me. I heard he was from California. Norm said something I can have no idea. He was quick. And... uh but every time they shook my sponsor's hand, they were cordial and nice. And every time they looked at they couldn't even shake my hand before they broke out laughing. <laughs> and I couldn't take it no more. When Clancy did it, I couldn't take it. I looked, I said, Barney, are they laughing at me? He looked at me and says, well, yeah. <laughs> he says, yeah, they are. He says, you are a sight to behold. 
says, but you know what, dummy? That's what I heard. says, if you ever learn to laugh at yourself, you'll never be left unamused. I hated that man's guts. But something happened to me that weekend, as if you're new, it's going to happen to you too if your spirit's open to it, is that I fell in love with AA. I didn't know it that day. I didn't know. All I know is I wanted to go to another convention. I just wanted to be in the spirit of what was there. I didn't know what was there. I had no idea that that was the medicine for what ailed me because, you see, Budweiser had always worked. I had no idea I was going to quit drinking. I had no idea I was, I had no idea I was done drinking. And what I left out of the course of that weekend, I say for now, my dad had been sober four years, hadn't drank, and they had a restraining order against me. I couldn't come within 100 yards of any of my family. I'd been violent with every one of them, and I could not go near them. And my dad heard I was sober, and he heard that I wasn't drinking and had been sober for almost four weeks. And he invited me over for Thanksgiving dinner. And my sponsor said, early on, if you're going to drink, call me first. I'm not going to try to talk you out of it. I just want you to call me first. I said, okay. And I never thought that day would ever come up because I've never not wanted to drink. <laughs> and I go to my dad's house, and now bear in mind, my dad hadn't drank for four years. And they just come out with a beer called Miller Lite that year. And so my dad went and bought a 12-pack of Miller Lite. And uh, he opened up a can of beer after four years. And he says to me, have one. Now, that's my dad. He wasn't trying to hurt me. That's the first time I've ever seen him bond to me. And I said, sure. And he opened up the beer for me, put it in my hand, and then from nowhere, call me, stupid! <laughs> sort of like that. I said, Dad, can you wait a minute? i got to call somebody. And he never asked me. I just went and I called Barney at home, Thanksgiving. He was having Thanksgiving dinner with his family. And I told him, I said, well, I'm going to drink. He said, really? Can I come over first? I said, sure. So he raced over to my mama's house. Never said a thing about drinking. He walked in the door like he owned the place. And he saw me with that can of beer in my hand. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't let go of the beer. I had it in my hand. Because I'm going to drink it. And Barney says, why don't you go for a ride with me? And I said, okay. I said, Dad, I'll be right back. So I put the beer down. And we went away for an hour. Now, I want you to hear the news. He never talked to me once about not drinking. He talked to me about how much he loved AA. And how much AA's done for him. I, think, I thought he talked about himself an awful lot. <laughs> but by the time he dropped me off, and he didn't even come back in, he just dropped me off. And he says, I'll see you at the meeting tonight. And you know what? I never drank. And my dad died a year and a half later from chronic, untreated alcoholism. And I could have drank. But for the grace of God, I had a sponsor. I had, to, I had what you taught me. To, it wasn't a discipline yet, it was a hope. And so I, I'm glad I called my sponsor. Because that's what God would have me do. And that's what I did. And so he and I went for that ride. And I haven't had a drink from that day to this day. I, I don't think one thing does it. There's a lot of things. But I, you know, I still didn't know what was wrong with me. I'm floating around AA. And then in my home group, after you get a year in, you know, they have you greeting people, mopping the floor, doing the AA chores that the old timers, in my opinion, didn't want to do anymore. <laughs> yeah, get a newcomer. Yeah, I don't know what that routine's about. Yeah, I've had that before. But I did it because they said I'd drink if I didn't. <laughs> so at the end of the year, at my home group, the sponsor gives you a chip and says something nice about you, even though they make it up, and then they sit down. And then my job is to come up to the podium and say something, thank him, 
thank you, thank God, not necessarily in that order, and then sit down and shut up because that's about all I've learned after a year to not infect another newcomer. <laughs> and so my sponsor came up and, and he indeed gave me a coin and said something nice and sat down and, and then I approached the podium. Something funny happened to me on the way to the podium. I was a year sober now. As I approached the podium, I saw Bill and Bob's picture on the wall and I saw mine floating up between them. <laughs> I realized in that moment that I was now spiritually inclined. And I looked over at my sponsor and realized what a pathetic loser he'd become after all these years. Here I am with a year. What do I need him for? So I gave my acceptance speech, fired my sponsor, and got a new sponsor. So from my second to my seventh year, I sponsored myself, did steps 1, 12, and 13. By the way, ladies, if any of you here this morning or in your first year, and I come up to you after the meeting and say something like this, maybe I'll even posture a little bit. I'll say, hey. Want to go have coffee and talk about God? If I do that, run! The result of which, at seven years, I weighed 146 pounds. I had a 29-inch waist. I was more depressed now than I've ever been in my entire life. And I am absolutely convinced AA doesn't work. I've been here seven years. Why am I not better? I am convinced. And I can't call my sponsor Barney now because I've been lying on him. I can't call you because I've been lying to you about him. I'm at that turning point in sobriety. I know not where to go. But I know I'm in the darkest, deepest depression I've ever been in. I called my psychiatrist. And this is not an opinion. Don't leave here today and say Wayne Butler gave an opinion. This is not an opinion. This happens to be my personal experience. I called my psychiatrist. We had a little chat and I said, you know, AA don't work. I don't know what to do. He called me in. He drew my blood, did some tests, told me I had a chemical imbalance and needed lithium. And then he prescribed amitriptyline, which is a chemical that helps block pain. And then he asked me if I would participate in a volunteer program for a new antidepressant drug they were coming out with. And we all know now that it's Prozac. And I said, absolutely. Without a second thought, I said, absolutely. And he wrote me out my prescriptions. And on the way to the drugstore, from nowhere, call me! So I called Barney. And I, I told him I was in trouble. And you know what? He said he'd meet me at the Maidrite. I wanted to meet him out of his trailer where there's not so many people to see me humiliated. But he said, I'll meet you at the Maidrite because he wanted witnesses. And I went and picked up my pills. Innocently, by the way. And I went to the maid right and I set my bag of pills on the table where Barney was centered, front and center, so everybody could see. And I looked at him and I said, Barney, I'm bipolar. He looked at me and he says, I know it. I know you're bipolar, pal. We all know you're bipolar. We've known for a long time you're bipolar. He says, You know what, dummy? One of the days you're going to be walking down 16th Street and you're going to hear the loudest explosion you've ever heard. It's going to be your head popping right out of your ass! <laughs> and you won't be bipolar no more. 
He says, I'm no doctor. He says, but I do know this. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I know for a fact you have never applied the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous to your life. Therefore, you should be ten times sicker than you were seven years ago because this is progressive. It gets only worse, never better, until you apply these principles. He says, so I don't know what you've got. But he says, I do know this. If you're willing to try the AA way, I'll work with you. And if at the end of two years you're not better, I'll go with you to the doctor and I'll help you take your pills. And you know what? I said, okay. He had me. And I didn't, I didn't take those pills. You know why? Because I knew in my heart I was a liar. I knew I hadn't worked this program. I knew I was using that as an escape. I knew. But I couldn't tell you that. Because it's more important to look bad and die than it is to do the right thing and suffer the pain. And so what I did was I took the big book and did the steps right out of the big book the way it's outlined. I kept my service work going because that's what saved my life was sponsorship and service work. That's what kept me sober for seven years. And then I took that big book down and used a 12 and 12 for amplification of my symptoms. And I did the 12 steps. Amazingly enough, at the end of two years, I weighed 242 pounds. My ninth year of sobriety, I weighed 242 pounds. My depression was gone and I cared about whether I had teeth or not. You hear me? And I did all the same things I've been doing the whole time, only this time I added the steps. That has a benefit. (laughs) But I had one thing, a link that was missing. I had a dream. And I want to tell you about that dream. I want to be a cop. You know, I've never told nobody that dream because I knew I could never do it. I was dying inside because I had a dream and couldn't work for it. And my sponsor said, you got to try. He says, because a dream is only your will unless it takes place, then it's God's will. That's basically, I'm paraphrasing. But he said, try for it. And if you fail to achieve your dream, then that's self-will. And if you'll just accept that and move the other direction, God has a door open for him, for you to get what He wants for you. And I thought, Barney, I can't be a cop. I want to be a cop so bad. Think about it for a minute. I've been arrested nine times for domestic violence. Twice for attempted murder. 17 psychiatric institutionalizations. It's hard to be a cop. Unless you're in Iowa. They consider it a good experience. You know that? I didn't know that. I got my record expunged and cleaned up. And I applied for the sheriff's department. I knew I wasn't going to get on, but I, but I had to try. I, I knew I wouldn't. I wore that lime green double knit polyester suit to my interview. It was my good luck charm. I took some psychiatric tests because I told the truth on my application. I found out later the only reason the sheriff invited me in was he wanted to see the human being attached to the application. I don't want to take up the time to tell you that whole story, but all I want to tell you is that I got sent to the academy. Uh, there were 16 of us in the academy, and I graduated fourth in my class. I'll never forget that. And uh, I called my sponsor. I said, Barney, I made it. And he, he cried. And he said he was proud of me. Do you know, not to put anybody else down, other people probably said it, but I wasn't ready to hear it. I heard him say, I'm proud of you. I'd, I've never heard that in my life. Maybe I have, but I don't know. And then I said, Barney, they gave me my gun. I heard him say, oh, shit. (laughs) And uh, during that course of events is where I come to meet my new sponsor, uh, uh, the sponsor I have today. 
uh, he knows much of my past. And uh, I put it off as long as I could, and then I surrendered. And uh, I'm, I'm the type of guy that surrenders painfully, slowly, because it's in my best interest to surrender. I don't know what that is, but it must have something to do with that alcoholism thing. But I got to do that. I, I loved it. Uh, I always wanted to move to California. I finally did. And uh, uh, I have a 13-year-old. I'll start to tell you about that, son. Let me tell you about that. You know, a lot of a lot of things go on. A lot of things happen I don't want to talk about. It's not a, I mean, as far as what I, my work and, and the things I do. Because there's a lot of things that are possible. I sound like I'm circular right now, but there's a lot of things I'm doing that's, that's just, it is what it is. Uh, everybody works. Everybody plays. We all, we all try anyway. If you don't play, I hope you do. hope you find something to do that, that entertains you, even if it's a newcomer. <laughs> newcomers are no offense newcomers are entertaining if they're my kind of newcomers I should say water seeks its own level I, I don't get I don't get those I'll do anything you say and then they do it I get those that they want me to convince them they need to and then do it for them Two years ago, uh, I think it was about two years ago, I got a, a, a legal document in the mail in California. And uh, it, I was being sued for the adoption of my son. And uh, it was one of the darkest days I've ever experienced sober. Um, I had a long talk with my then sponsor. And I didn't know what to do. And in the affidavits, I'll tell you what, if you missed anything on your fourth step, just be sued for adoption or divorce. The judge will get it all. <laughs> And uh, they had everything in this document, this paperwork from what I was like, what happened, and not what I'm like today. I mean, no offense. Lawyers do what lawyers do. They were just doing their job. And he had in there what I was like my first seven years. And that left it open to interpretation that AA doesn't work. And uh, my sponsor and I agreed I didn't have a chance. So he said, call your son and ask him what he wants. And I called my son and I said, Zach, what do you want? He says, I want to be adopted. I dropped the phone. And he doesn't know it. I hung the phone up before I died. And uh, I called him back, my sponsor, and uh, I said, what do I do? So I had to go out to Monterey Park. I'll never forget that day. I took a friend of mine from AA, thank God. But I knew that that was the right thing to do, and it was just Because I knew I was going to be judged by some of the people who don't understand what was going on. Some people think I'm just trying to escape responsibility. But the truth of the matter is, is my sponsor and I agreed it was the best thing for him, and that's what he wants. That didn't help me any. I was dying. And uh, I went out there to Monterey Park and met with the judge, told him what was happening. You know what that judge did? This doesn't happen every day. He edited out all of the negative dialogue. And he incorporated into this record that Mr. Butler was doing what he thought was best for his son. And that's all he put into that record. He didn't put all that negative crap in there. Now, that allowed me to walk out of there with my dignity. He didn't have to do that. He could have put all that stuff in. Uh, and then I signed the papers. And he says to me, he says, Mr. Butler, do you realize you're signing an irrevocable consent to adopt and that you'll never have parental rights, nor can you gain parental rights? I'll never forget those words as long as I live. And I said, yes, sir. And then I signed the paper. I left the room, went to the bathroom, and puked for the first time in my sobriety. And there's no, you know, uh, Clancy said this to me. He said, the tragedy of Alcoholics Anonymous is there's no step to work that will mend a broken heart. I hope you've got a lot of commitments. You know, those commitments kept me alive during that period of time. And uh, I walked out of there a virtual dead man because the guy who adopted my son was the man I sponsored. He had 12 years of sobriety. And uh, time went by. A little while later, I got a phone call from my son's mother who was sober nine years. Charles was sober 12. And she had drank. And I mean no disrespect here. She had drank. And he had drank. And there was some trouble. And he said, 
Come home and get Zach. He needs you. He's not my son. You took him from me. You destroyed my heart. You took away my hope. And now I look like a bomb to everybody. That's not what I said. That's what I thought. What I said was, can I call you back? And then I called my sponsor. What do I do? He says, buy a ticket. So I bought a plane ticket and went home, picked my son up and spent five days with him while they could get their stuff in order. And uh, I never told him a bad thing about his mother. Do you hear me? Never said a bad thing about her or him. And you know what I did say? Because that's what my sponsor would have me do. I said, you know, Zach, you're... Your, uh, step, I said stepdad. I didn't say your dad. I couldn't do that. I said, your stepdad is, is a good man. He's having some trouble right now. Give him time. And I said, your mama will get better. Give her time. I had a chance to take shots at both of them. And uh, by the grace of God, I didn't. I wanted to. And so five days later, I got back on the plane and went home. And the heart wasn't any better. I felt better about myself as a man. And I just kept doing the business for living. A little while later, I got another phone call. Interesting. That paperwork has a certain amount of days to get from the Monterey, Court, Monterey Park Courthouse to the Rock Island County Courthouse and recorded as, as a fact. It got lost in the mail. Isn't it, he's still my son. Do you know that? To, he's with me right now in California, visiting me for the summer. The adoption didn't go through. And my son's mother decided not to pursue the adoption. She realized that that might be God's will for he and I. And you know what? If it wasn't for AA, I'd have done things that I couldn't have taken back. I would have said things that I couldn't have altered because now I'm sober. How do you take it back? I'm so glad that I had been taught in Alcoholics Anonymous the disciplines of alcohol, the disciplines that we, that become us, that, that take us. And then I get to meet friends and people like you. I mean, I'm doing stuff in my life I can't even imagine I'm doing. All because I found a solution for alcoholism here. You know what? Let me share that with you. I've got a few minutes. Let me take it up with that. There's a thing called the ism. And I didn't know what that was. It's important. It's that internal spiritual maladjustment we find out in the big book. And alcohol produces an effect in my mind that makes me feel normal. I had no idea that that was the effect I was pursuing. The feeling of normal. And in the big book it says that I will begin to act and react sanely and normally. And that's why the fellowship here is so important. Because when I'm with you, I'm not with me. Do you hear me? Because when I'm not with you, I'm left with me and I'm not alone. <laughs> there should be a neighborhood watch sign right there but if you're new I want to leave you with this thought rule 62 let's not take ourselves or others too darn seriously we get to have fun about all this we get to have activities in AA that are fun but the bottom line is, is I'm here for a very serious and deadly affair a condition known as alcoholism the solution has been alcohol for me I need a sufficient substitute and vastly more than that as it's written in our book. And that substitute is being with you guys. That God thing. God could and would if He were sought. I find God in my sponsor. I find God in you. I find God in Jim. Boy, I needed God yesterday with Jim at the gym, I'll tell you. I don't want to detract. Jim took me to his gym yesterday. My God, he put me on machines. I didn't know they could do it. I didn't know I had those parts of my body to affect. I thought I'd share. But if you have a problem with God, let me leave you with this thought. Because that's been a wrong course for me. We have the idea of substitution. We substitute AA service and love for a drink. 
And it works. But in that mix is a God as we understand Him. If you have a problem with that idea, let me share this idea that my sponsor gave to me. He says, we've got three gods in AA. Because they know one's not enough for people like me. G-O-D. Good orderly design for living. That's in the big book. We have a good orderly design for living. And then in the 12 and 12 it says, G-O-D. Good orderly direction. Do you hear that? Because see, I used to put direction down. It says, good orderly direction. It says, when I become willing to accept direction and take advice, I will have set foot on the path to solid honesty and genuine humility and clear thinking. And then my favorite G-O-D, group of drunks. <laughs> See, because with you, I have power. When I'm out there by myself, I have no power. It's the AA math. One plus one equals three. You ever heard the AA math? Got it right out of the retarded class. <laughs> one plus none equals none. When I'm alone, there ain't nothing going on that needs to be known about. I'm powerless. One plus one equals three. When I sit down with Sean or Jim or Dick or Reggie, one plus one equals three. Whether I know it or not, God comes into the mix. And that's what happens with me and you. And I believe if I keep doing that and I keep sustaining the actions I'm taking and continue on this course of recovery and play with my friends in AA, that I won't have to pick up a drink today. Thanks for letting me share.